Hey everybody, I wanted to let you know some of you are interested in my career as a singer, and just this past week I was interviewed by Neil Gittleman, the music director of the Dayton Philharmonic. I did a concert with them more than 20 years ago, and it is being broadcast a week from this coming Sunday, that is January 30th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find it at discoverclassical.org. This is a one-time live stream. I don't believe it will be heard again. But I did get a copy of the Zoom interview that I did with Neil, and I will be posting it as a bonus episode for my Patreon supporters. So, those two things. If you want to hear the concert, you can tune in on Sunday, January 30th from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, once again at discoverclassical.org. And if you want to see and hear the interview that Neil and I did earlier this week, you can find that on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com countermelody, and anyone who becomes a supporter will have access to that interview. Now let's get going with today's very, very challenging subject. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each, but the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me. And now, this week's episode. Hi everyone, thank you so much for the positive responses that I have gotten for the past two episodes that I did. The first of my Great Canadian Singer series, which featured Lois Marshall, and last week's interview slash conversation with my dear friend David Saverin. I hope in the future to present further chats such as that one. For today, I'm returning to the Canadian Singers series, and I am featuring a singer who is one of the greatest tenors that ever lived, but who also is a very big thorn in my side in a number of ways, which I will get into. Before we do that, though, I just want you to hear his voice. This is John Vickers in a live performance from Salzburg, conducted by Herbert von Karajan, singing the flower song from Carmen.
I think it's immediately apparent on hearing this recording that Vickers was so much more than a technician, so much more than a beautiful voice. In fact, one could argue that he was somewhat lacking in both categories. I'm not going to make that statement. I find the voice very engaging, and I find his technical control pretty impressive most of the time. What Vickers had, though, was this extraordinary ability to penetrate to the deepest possible meaning of music and text. I just yesterday came across a live performance that he did of Das Lied von der Erde with the Boston Symphony Orchestra in January 1970. William Steinberg is conducting the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and I think that his insights into Mahler help propel Vickers into the stratosphere in this most extraordinarily difficult of pieces to sing. This is the end of the first song, Das Trinklied von Jammer der Erde, the drinking song on the sorrows of the earth. John Vickers was born in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, on the 29th of October, 1926, the sixth of eight children. 
His father was a high school principal, bandmaster, and salesman, as well as a lay minister. The family was deeply religious, and indeed, John Vickers wore his Christian beliefs like some kind of mantle throughout the course of his career. It was a music-loving family, and all members sang and played various instruments, and young John's voice was frequently heard shaking the rafters in their church. He delayed attending college because those who had served in the military had precedence for college admissions. During that time, he worked as both a farmer and primarily as a salesman. This entire time, he continued, however, to pursue his singing on an amateur basis. Eventually, he was offered a scholarship to attend the Toronto Conservatory in 1950. During that time, he made his very first recording with Ernest McMillan conducting the Toronto Symphony. This was of Messiah, a work he was later also to record with Thomas Beecham in a famously weighty performance. In this first Messiah, the soprano, was none other than Lois Marshall. From that very first recording in 1952, let's hear a portion of the recit and then the Every Valley. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a Oh, cool. 
time that he was in school and following that, Vickers began pursuing a professional career, doing work with the Toronto Opera Festival and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. There are a number of fascinating televised operatic performances from this era. During that period and on those telecasts, standard Italian operatic repertoire figures much more prominently than it would later in his career. Although one, of course, must remember that Boscanio and Otello were two of his greatest roles. Regina Resnick, with whom he sang Carmen, was an early supporter of his and encouraged him to continue to pursue his singing actively, even as he was seriously considering giving it up because he wasn't making a living to support his family for by this time he had married and had at least one child. This concern with finances was something that would occupy Vickers over the course of his entire career. He did an audition for David Webster, the head of Covent Garden, who was visiting Canada, and he was immediately offered a plane ticket to London. He demurred for a number of months while he continued his study, but eventually he went there and made his debut during the 1956-57 Covent Garden season, as both Ricardo in Ballo in Maschera and as Don José in Carmen. Indeed, Covent Garden would remain his home company from then on until his retirement from the operatic stage. He had also appeared in Philadelphia and New York in performances with Eileen Farrell and Inge Bork, and these also had yielded interest from other companies and impresarios. So within a few months of having said that he was going to give up singing, suddenly he found himself with a plethora of really choice assignments, and not just at Covent Garden. One of those contracts was with RCA Records, with whom he made his first recordings. His only solo vocal recital was made in 1961 with Tullio Serafine and consists of Italian operatic arias, some of which he had sung in public, others which he would never sing the entire roles. But there's something that's immediately apparent, even in his performance of the aria Recondita Armonia from Tosca, a role that he never took on in the house. This man engaged with the words in a way that made him one of the greatest singing artists of the 20th century. 
Listen to how Cavaradossi in this performance seriously considers the different kinds of beauties, the dark beauty of Tosca and the light-haired beauty of this unknown woman that he has been painting. This is the only time I think I've ever heard this aria when I felt like the words meant something. There's another performance on that recording that I'd like to share with you right now. That is of the so-called improviso from Andrea Chenier. Normally, Vickers didn't look great in period costume, but Andrea Chenier was a role that he sang occasionally and with which he felt a great identification. You can hear that in his performance of this recitation that he gives in front of the assembly of elite guests, where he manages in an extremely eloquent way to put the mistress of the house, Maddalena di Quagny, rather to shame. Oh, 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 
Vickers appeared at Covent Garden in two groundbreaking and career-making productions. One of them was in the company premiere of Hector Berlioz's opera Les Troyens, which initially was performed in English, but which Vickers sang a total of 33 times with that company, and which he also reprised in San Francisco and the Met. There's also, of course, the legendary studio recording that was made in 1969 concurrently with a revival of Les Troyens, this time in French, at Covent Garden. I'm not going to play any of that for you today because these are fairly well-known performances and recordings. The other work that he sang that really made a strong, strong impression on the world of opera was the title role in Verdi's Don Carlo. This is now seen historically as the production directed by Lucchino Visconti that really put this opera on the world stages. Nowadays, we remember Vickers primarily for his Otello when we think of his Verdi roles, but it must be remembered that he also sang Riccardo in Ballo, Radames in Aida, this Don Carlo, and one time at the Met, Alvaro in Forza del Destino. Not to mention that his operatic debut back in Canada was somewhat anomalously the Duke in Rigoletto. And vis-a-vis Don Carlo, so often this role is thought of rather as a cipher and a rather weak character. This was not at all the case when Vickers took the role on. He really made him the central figure in the drama, and that's not an easy thing to do. 
He did this, however, by means of emphasis on the words and the acting of the role. In fact, Vickers didn't really think of himself as an actor. He embodied the part so that he was able, he said, to leave John Vickers behind when he went onto the stage. Indeed, it could be argued that his greatest artistic contribution was as that of a singing actor, with the emphasis on acting. When he sang Giazzone in Medea with Maria Callas in Dallas, she was so struck by him, and from then on, she never appeared in a production of Medea in which he did not sing the tenor part opposite her. In 1959, they took their show on the road, so to speak, to London, and here is an excerpt from their first act duet. The performance took place on the 30th of June, 
lost himself was Ascanio in Pagliacci. This was a role which he sang over the course of his entire career. There's even a telecast from the CBC in the mid-1950s, and it was the role with which he made his Met debut in 1960. Stories abound of Vickers physically harming his female co-stars, particularly in Pagliacci and Otello. I'm going to play you a brief excerpt of the end of the opera from a performance that took place in Buenos Aires at the Teatro Colón in 1968. Here, his nedda is the British soprano Joan Carlyle, who died a number of months ago at the age of 90. You may remember I did a very short memorial tribute to her. Here, she is a nedda with real backbone, She stands up to him, but you can still hear him throwing things all over the place, and more than once, Sopranos reported being terrified of him. Pay a special note to the way that he says the final line, La commedia è finita, the voice of a broken man. Thank you. 
was deeply invested in finding the humanity of his characters. And another role for which he was justly celebrated was that Florestan in Fidelio. In 1961, a production was mounted at Covent Garden in which the Croatian soprano Shena Jurinac sang her first Leonore and Otto Klemperer conducted. John Vickers was, of course, the Florestan, and his recording with Otto Klemperer is one of the glories of recorded history. This is the restative Gott welch dunkel hier from a performance at Covent Garden on the 24th of February 1961. The measure of any Florestan is the way in which that initial word Gott comes straight from the heart of the singer. And in that way, as well as vocally, John Vickers is virtually unmatched in this part. Eventually, John Vickers began taking on roles in the operas of Richard Wagner as well, although these were chosen with great care and, as with another great Heldon tenor, James King, often with perhaps an excess of caution. The role in which Vickers first made his mark in Wagner was as Siegmund in Die Walküre. This is the lowest of any of the Wagner tenor roles and it lay particularly well for Vickers, who sometimes had problems with his extreme upper register. 
His first Siegmund was sung under the baton of Hans Knappertsbusch at Bayreuth. Sometimes Vickers would do his first performances of a role out of the spotlight. For instance, when he first sang Tristan at the Teatro Colón in 1971. But in the case of Siegmund, as later with Peter Grimes, his first performances were in two of the most important operatic venues. Vickers went on the record as saying that Knappertsbusch was his favorite Wagner conductor, and he also sang his final performance at Bayreuth in 1964 as Parsifal. That performance was also Knappertsbusch's final performance anywhere, for he died very shortly thereafter. Returning to that first Siegmund at Bayreuth in 1958, this is Siegmund's Winterstürme, which is heard in the midst of the love duet between Siegmund and Sieglinde. And because I didn't want to cut her off without giving her a chance to sing anything, we do hear a little bit of Leonie Riesenek responding to Vickers with Du bist der Lenz.
here is the part that's going to be somewhat hard for me to get into. I saw John Vickers four times on the stage in his four greatest roles and in performances that remain seared into my memory. They were among the greatest operatic experiences I have ever had, and I value and treasure him for that. But, and it's a big but, he was a difficult colleague, he was a religious fanatic, he was a fundamentalist, he was a homophobe, and it's this last that really gives me the worst problem. He was also somewhat of a hypocrite, it would appear, because he would reject certain roles based on his religious and moral principles, roles like Captain Veer in Billy Budd and Aschenbach in Death and Venice, in both cases, because the characters were homosexuals. The most famous, or should I say infamous, instance of this was the role of Tannhäuser, which he first agreed to do and then pulled out at the last minute, citing a moral repulsion with the character. Wagging tongues at the time suggested that perhaps the role, one of Wagner's longest and certainly his highest held in tenor part, was by that point simply beyond Vickers's vocal capabilities. At the same time, he had no difficulty portraying in Die Valkyre, one of a set of incestuous twins, in Tristan und Isolde, one of a pair of adulterers. So this was an inconsistency, in my opinion, in his professed moral stance against certain characters. There were many other roles as well in Vickers's repertoire which were, shall we say, morally repugnant. For instance, there's Herod in Zalome, which, in fact, John Vickers did only once at Orange in 1974. He was also scheduled to do it for a BBC telecast in his first years at Covent Garden, but that led to a feud with the BBC that lasted for more than a decade and which is far too complicated to go into here. But suffice it to say that this was merely one of a very large number of companies, administrators, conductors, with whom John Vickers held grudges and raged long-standing feuds. But back to Herod for a moment, because it's such an interesting performance that he gives opposite Leonie Riesenek in 1974. Because this is such an uncharacteristic part for John Vickers, and, in fact, his only Richard Strauss role, for he never sang things like the Kaiser in Die Frauenschatten, for instance, in which James King was so justly celebrated. This is the scene after which Salome has danced and is demanding, in payment, the head of Johannaan. And Vickers, as Herod, is at the very end of his tether, begging Salome to reconsider, offering her all different kinds of compensation, including the veil from the temple. But she will have none of it. And at the end, he says, give her what she wants. She is most certainly her mother's child. Oh, <laughs> 
John Vickers often took on roles that were quite unusual and unexpected for him, among which Latza in Yenufa, Vashek in The Bartered Bride, Nerone in a notorious production of L'Incoronazione di Popea, which took place at the Paris Opera and which co-starred Gwyneth Jones in the title role. The title role in Berlioz's Benvenuto Cellini. He also sang the role of Aeneas, not just in Les Troyens, but in Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. These performances took place in Dallas in the fall of 1972. And I'm playing a portion of this where the sorceress, presenting herself as a messenger in form of Mercury himself, tells Aeneas that he must return to Troy in the role of the spirit is my former teacher and dear friend, Joan Kaplan, who I think sounds fantastic here. At the end of the edict delivered from the spirit, we hear the heartbroken Aeneas saying that he would rather die than leave Dido behind. But of course, he does, and he doesn't die, but Dido does. Oh. 
One of Vickers's absolutely greatest impersonations was that of the title role of Peter Grimes, Benjamin Britten's 1945 operatic masterpiece. I mentioned before that Vickers was outspoken in his homophobia. There are many, many examples of really inexcusable things that he said and did, which simply would not be tolerated today. In fact, there are many things that John Vickers did that would not be tolerated today. I stop and think that in today's world and in today's opera world, he would most likely be erased. I'm of two minds about cancel culture anyway, and I'm not really going to get into that today. But I will say that neither Benjamin Britten nor Peter Pierce were privately thrilled. In fact, they were both rather displeased with Vickers's impersonation of Peter Grimes, which he first did at the Metropolitan Opera in 1967. But this was a role that he sang for nearly 20 years and in which he made an indelible impact. I saw him do it on tour with the Metropolitan Opera in Minneapolis, and it's one of those things that, as I said before, is emblazoned into my memory, and which I simply will never forget. We're going to hear a portion of a live recording from Covent Garden in September 1975. As with so many of these other Grimes productions, Colin Davis is the conductor. Thank you. 
Another role in which Vickers was indescribably great was that of Verdi's Otello. I also saw him do this role on the Met tour. But the good thing is that you can actually find portions of it from a broadcast in 1978. These are available either on YouTube or I believe the Met offers it for their streaming services and it's also available as a DVD. The Desdemona in those performances was the great Renata Scotto, who presents a Desdemona of real strong will. And in the third act, she stands up to Vickers' Otello in startling and deeply compelling ways. 
These were two great actors and singers pitted against each other, giving what I consider to be the performances of their lifetimes. I remember as a kid sitting watching this on television and being absolutely positively riveted. Images from that telecast burned themselves into my memory, and when it was rebroadcast in honor of the centenary of Verdi's death in 2001, I watched it again, and I realized that I remembered these actions, these motions, these vocal gestures, the extraordinary commitment of both of these performers. I'm going to play a portion of that telecast for you. And if it doesn't make your hair stand on end, you better check your pulse. <laughs> That's all I can say. Tremendo, 
candido giro del tuo fronte scritto. Ahimè! Che! Non sei fortuna di porti Another role in which John Vickers was indescribable was as Tristan. Numerous times he committed to singing the role, including in Georg Scholte's 1959 recording, which he eventually withdrew from. This might very well have been the basis of an artistic confrontation and conflict that was only exacerbated once Georg Scholte took over the music directorship of Covent Garden. Because he refused to perform with Georg Scholte, this meant that there were innumerable lost opportunities. Eventually, Fickers did take on the role of Tristan, which he sang for the first time opposite Birgit Nielsen at the Teatro Colón in 1971. He sang it numerous other times, including in London, in Chicago, at the Met, I saw him do it in the fall of 1979 in Chicago, and it changed my life. He was singing opposite the soprano Roberta Knie, who was a wonderful, wonderful Isolde, and with whom he had a very close personal and professional relationship. I was thinking I might try and scare up the recording of that, which I think is obtainable somewhere or other. But then I found just two days ago that he had performed the act to Liebesnacht, opposite one of my favorite singers, Eileen Farrell. This performance was also under the baton of William Steinberg, and the performance took place in Pittsburgh in the spring of 1973. I'm just playing a short portion, much as I'd love to play an extended excerpt of this, 
but I do encourage you all to look it up. This is the first time that we hear that unbelievable melody that reaches its zenith at the conclusion of the third act in the Liebestod. In the distance, we also hear the voice of Brangene, who in this performance is none other than Brigitte Fassbender. These might have been her only performances with John Vickers. The combination of Vickers and the immensely gifted Eileen Farrell is a thing for the ages. Their voices blend beautifully, and I must say that William Steinberg was a great Wagnerian. certain extent, John Vickers remained a bit of an outsider, a, a country bumpkin, an awkward colleague. Do you know, one of the things that he would do invariably would be 
during breaks in rehearsal to grasp his female co-stars around the waist and hoist them into the air. When I say that I salute and almost even worship John Vickers, I do so with full knowledge of the problematic man that he was. Now, Vickers always had problems with his Canadian-ness. He felt unappreciated in his homeland. There were countless battles that took place there as well with various institutions. But in 1984, with one of his regular pianists, Richard Wojtak, he recorded an album of Canadian art songs, which is really, really beautiful, in spite of the fact that this was coming toward the very end of his long career. I'm going to play just one song from that for you. This is by the Canadian composer Srul Irving Glick, and it's one of his two landscapes, the first one, and it's set to a poem by Kenneth Patchen, The Sea is a Wash with Roses. Among other things, it's an opportunity to once again appreciate the beautiful, plangent piano singing of which John Vickers was so capable, and which many accused him of overmilking from time to time. The other thing that you can hear, of course, is his superb diction, in which every single word is heard with great clarity and is intoned with that same kind of intention.
Vickers was an occasional recitalist from the very first days of his career up until his retirement. Later in his career, he took on the monumental task of singing Franz Schubert's cycle, Winterreise, of which we heard Lois Marshall sing such a memorable excerpt two weeks ago. Vickers had a very different approach than Lois Marshall to this cycle. And here one can note that he wasn't always the most scrupulous musician. He was often accused of bending the music in a way that rendered it almost unrecognizable and of using certain vocal mannerisms, including that crooning that he was often accused of, instead of a more forthright interpretation. As far as I'm aware, there are two extant recordings of his Winterreise. One of them was a studio recording made for EMI in France, and the other is a live recording with the pianist Peter Schaff, with whom Vickers often concertized. This is a live performance from 1983, and it is of the song Der Lindenbaum, one of the great melodic inspirations of Schubert, but even more so the conjuring of loneliness, of nostalgia, of despair. These were all things which John Vickers knew all too well in spite of, or perhaps even because of, his deep religious convictions. Thank you. 
In 1988, John Vickers, whose career had already been slowing down, gave his final performances, a concert performance of Act Two of Wagner's Parsifal, another one of his most memorable Wagner impersonations, and one with which he felt a great kinship. There was no farewell tour. A planned series of concerts fell through, and eventually... John Vickers looked back retroactively and dubbed those Parsifal performances his farewell to singing. His beloved wife, Hattie, died in November 1991 after an extended battle with cancer. He eventually remarried and lived out his days in quiet retirement until he was stricken with Alzheimer's which robbed him of any awareness that he had been one of the greatest opera singers in the world, the greatest tenor of his era. He died on July 10th, 2015, in Ontario, at the age of 88. There is perhaps no more controversial tenor in the history of opera in the 20th century. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but maybe it's not. What is indisputable is that John Vickers was a great singer and a great musician, 
and a very, very flawed human being. But he left a legacy that can still be marveled at and learned from by all who choose to listen. Thank you for joining me today, my dear friends. I'm going to take us out with John Vickers in a 1972 performance of the final song of Beethoven's An die Ferne Geliebte Cycle. In this 1972 performance, he is accompanied by the pianist Leo Barkin. This beautiful cycle is addressed to the far distant beloved. This song, which concludes the cycle, is a tribute not just to the beloved, but to the power of the songs that have been sung to that beloved, and of the power of music in healing those distances that separate us.
song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach. <laughs> <laughs>